0: Thank you for joining us on the Overcoming Monday podcast, where we provide you little secrets for your big breakthrough. This podcast is designed to enhance your emotional and spiritual health. Our mission is to help you understand yourself, the people you love, and the world around you so that you can win where it matters most. In each episode, we'll hear from writer, speaker, mom, and pastor's wife, Shari King, as she invites you into conversations about the issues that matter most to you. Now, let's get started.
1: Hello, Overcoming Monday listeners. Welcome to another episode in Season 11, How to Read the Bible. This episode is titled The Theme of Monarchy and also The Controversy of War in the Bible. So you know that the Israelites struggled with being a nation with no king. God agreed to provide one, and in this podcast, we're going to talk about Um, the basic ideas of monarchy, but God's expectations of a king and how that influenced their culture, but also how that also um, played into the ideas of war, which a lot of people are scared about uh, talking about within the Bible. So I have... An amazing friend with me here today to kind of talk about this subject. It's Dr. Embry, who is uh, my Old Testament professor at Regent University. Hi, Dr. Embry. Hello. I know that you've already introduced yourself once in another podcast, but we may not have the same listeners in this one. So I wondered if you just take a minute to introduce yourself again.
2: Sure. Um, well, I'm, I, I currently serve as an associate professor at Regent University uh in old testament um i came here in in 2015 uh with my wife and four kids um all boys uh prior to that we lived in in seattle where i taught at a small christian liberal arts school uh, for seven years and prior to that we were in uh, hawaii uh, where my in-laws live and we moved to hawaii from england Uh, And we'd been in England for three years where I did my PhD at Durham University.
1: Awesome. And so I met you in my Old Testament class, and I felt like when we had our virtual classes with everybody online through the computer, I just uh, really enjoyed the dialogue that we were able to have as a class. And so that's why I wanted to share your wisdom and knowledge with our audience, and We were just talking just before we started. You were asking me, so, you know, pretty much, Shari, what are you wanting to focus on in this podcast? And so I started talking and just realized I should just do this for the podcast.
2: Just start it up.
1: Yeah. So um, I want to talk about war because I think that sometimes, very often when I talk to people about reading the Old Testament, some of the scenes that you have in the Old Testament feel offensive and scary very often. And so I'm wanting to kind of like bring that out into the open so that we can discuss um, maybe the heart behind some of the reasons why God asked the Israelites to go to war. Um, But that is interrelated with the idea of monarchy. So the other thing is that... um, When I was in your class, I was learning that monarchy was meant to be or the kings that God established when Israelites did ask to have a king. God wanted the king to reflect who he was. And so I'm very much um, passionate in my life about figuring out how can I accurately and authentically reflect who God is to the world around me. That's, I feel like, a few years ago— the Lord just put two words in my heart, um, know and reflect, know and reflect. I felt like all the scriptures I started reading and studying were talking about in order to reflect God well, we have to know Him. And, mm-hmm. and we have to pursue Him in order to know Him. And there's, you know, it's kind of just creates a domino effect once you go down that line. But um, when I was younger And we would look at the kings of Israel. It was always like, well, this king was bad, and this king was good, and this was bad, and this guy was good. And, well, Manasseh was pretty much bad. And then at the end, he repented. But the nation of Israel was too far gone after that to really, like, pick itself up until you have, you know, another king come along. So, anyway... um, I feel like you can read it like a storyline and put people in categories and it can feel very, um, almost frustrating. And you understand why there is a King and why Israel asked for a King. Cause the time of the judges was so disruptive and, um, not peaceful and yeah. inconsistent. And mm-hmm. so I can understand the desire to have a King, but God also had expectations of a King and what he was supposed to, um, Present and be for his people,
2: right?
1: But then also, um, there was this realistic understanding from Samuel when he told the people, "Look, if you have a king, the king is gonna not rule well like God would rule." And so, I would just—I think—I just want to enter into how did why did the Israelites ask for a king? What was God hoping? in a king but what was the realistic expectation maybe of a king and how can we have maybe a better idea of the monarchy theme um how it's supposed to reflect god but how you know instead of just saying here are the categories of the kings and this is what they did and you know just putting it in a chart um Mm -hmm. maybe find the heart behind that chart if that makes any sense
2: it does Yeah. yeah Maybe, maybe you should just keep going.
1: <laughs> no, I don't feel like I know enough. I just need...
2: <laughs> I feel like you're hitting all the major pieces. Oh, so,
1: well, so. you can fill in.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, well, if you know, oftentimes when we think about monarchy, our starting point is First Samuel because that's the origin of the official monarchy in Israelite society. But as you touched on... Some of the some of the floor that's kind of built upon which the monarchy is built precedes that, both in the book of Judges, but also perhaps uh, we could die, we could pull this back into the Pentateuch as well. And so, I think maybe what I'll do, and then I'll I'll just kind of talk for a little bit, and then if you if there's pieces you want to pull out, I'll let you kind of uh, direct the conversation from there. But I I, I think if I if I could, I'll, I'll kind of talk about two pieces to the monarchy. The first, um, well, I don't know which order I'm going to do yet, but one will be to talk about the origin of the monarchy in First Samuel. So some of the details behind what what we're looking at with the with the development of the monarchy and its official uh, office uh, in the character and person of Saul, but also maybe of David. And then uh, talk also about kind of what we might say are kind of the underpinnings, the roots for the concept of, mo- of the monarchy uh, that that precede First Samuel and as a result probably inform the way in which we're to understand – what the king is supposed to be doing. So, in other words, talk about the actual process of the election of the king, and then also some of the undergirding, the, the theological or the uh, biblical sort of roots or you know uh, development of the monarchy and its theme. Um, and maybe we'll start with that part. So, one of the things I think to keep in mind is that the concept of sovereignty. If we want to, if we want to think of monarchy as, um. as a a form of of rule or leadership in Israelite society that maybe we could define as, you know, this concept of sovereignty. Who is it that leads Israel? The notion that this is something that's caught up in a monarchical or a sovereign office is something actually that sits kind of squarely in uh, the Pentateuch as an expression of the nature of God. So in the previous podcast, when we were talking about covenant, I made the comment that, you know, these categories, these ways of kind of defining God are are ways of defining God's nature. So God is a God who covenants. God is a God who atones. And in the same way, God is a sovereign God. So God is a God who reigns. Um, Now, some of that language we find, say, for instance, in the Psalms But there we could probably say that, you know, in some respects, the psalmists are influenced by their own sort of vision of political leadership in Israelite society. So they can look to the king and say, well, this is the way God should be expressed. But I think that they are also tapping into a deeper root, uh, which goes behind in a sense in their, you know, in their memories. It goes behind the monarchy and actually starts to excavate back to places like Exodus, where at the end of the book of Exodus, the temp the t- the tabernacle has been built, and the imagery of what the tabernacle is the best, probably the best way of describing it, uh, in terms of its physicality, is that it, it's a palace. And then at the end of Exodus, God's presence comes down and He takes up His seat mm-hmm. over the mercy seat, uh, in kind of the the center, so to speak, of the tabernacle. That is God's palace. So that is... Theme, if we were to sort of define that, what that is, is that is God's ta- God taking up his um, his monarchical office, his mm-hmm. reign over Israel. It's I, I talk about it. I think I probably said this in the Old Testament class that we were that we were part of together is that it's it's Exodus is an expression of God's kingdom coming to earth. Mm-hmm. So kingdom notions, of course, are, you know you know, uh, implicate sovereignty for a character. So if God's kingdom is coming, we're talking about God as sovereign. So at the headwaters of God's taking up residency here with this earthly community of Israel, there's this description of God as king. And I think it's that description that helps to sort of inform as we unpack some of the stories to come what we're actually talking about and dealing with. So if, if we push this beyond the Pentateuch, there's other places in the Pentateuch where we could kind of explore this a little bit. But for the sake of time, mm-hmm. we can go to a comment that you made about about judges is that once Israel finds themselves in the land through the book of Joshua, they come to a place after the death of Joshua where we don't see any character take up a centralized role of leadership. Mm. Uh, in Israelite society, now that's off. You know, there is no person. There was a Moses, and Moses was followed by Joshua. But there's no one who follows. No single character who is appointed, so to speak, by Joshua to follow him in his leadership. And oftentimes, that's taken to be you know one of the major problems with Joshua's leadership is that he didn't train anybody to follow him. But I think part of what the book of Josh, the books of Joshua and Judges, are trying to illustrate is that both Moses and Joshua are leaders for particular moments in Israelite society. They are they're moving Israel through the stage of their formation and development to the stage of the, the entry into the land. And then once we get beyond that, then the core definition of Israelite society as a place where God is king in at the center of their society, mm-hmm. around which there op, you know there operates this corporate body of priests who really are stewards of that reality of God's sovereignty and are the ones who are the are, are meant to be teaching and training the community in the right way to go, that's supposed to be the operational model. So when we get – in other words, when we get the judges, what we're supposed to see is God take up this full sort of sense of sovereignty in Israelite society. And we don't see that. We see the exact opposite. And we, what we see is the community of Israel falling away and a whole host of reasons perhaps – you know, are to blame for this, poor teaching, stubborn hearts, um, a problem with leadership, right? Uh, in the, Even in the form of the judges who come and rescue Israel, Israelite society periodically, there's a certain deficiency in, in the office, particularly as it unfolds in the story. But that theme of sovereignty, I think, still kind of percolates beneath the surface and then becomes explicit. Well, there's overtures to it in the story of Gideon where his son wants to sort of take it. The, the people want Gideon to rule over him. He says, I, neither I nor my son shall rule over you. Mm-hmm. So Gideon has this kind of clearer understanding that his role as a judge is actually sharply minimized in relationship to notions of sovereignty of God who's was king in Israel. Mm-hmm. But then when we get to the end of the book of Judges, there's this sort of outburst. You know, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel during those days. There, were no, there was no king in Israel. It's almost this sort of cry that that if we had a king, maybe we wouldn't have these problems. That's one way of reading it. So You know, as you said, there's all sorts of issues in the book of Judges. And if we just had a king, we maybe wouldn't have these issues. There's another way of reading that, though, that and I think both are operative at the same time, is that when Judges says there's no king in Israel, the first way of reading that is that there actually is no king in Israel. Mm -hmm. It's saying that's the reality. We have no king over us in the sense of no Saul no David no one no person like that who's leading us. Mm-hmm. And then the second is perhaps a commentary on Israelite society in relationship to God, which is to say they the community does not recognize God's sovereignty in the way that they ought to recognize God's sovereignty. So mm-hmm. in other words, it's a social commentary to say or you know it's it's a pragmatic commentary to say there's no king in Israel, but it's also a theological one to say the problem here, the core problem with Israelite society is that there's no king in it. They don't recognize God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And I think that creates sort of, well, there's a there's a certain density to that section of, of judges that pushes the story towards the need for a king. But I think it also creates this backdrop by which we understand the operation of the earthly monarch. In other words, if the real problem in Judges is that the community of Israel is not recognizing God's sovereignty in their lives and in the community, which would in, you know include all all sorts of things, you know, proper covenantal relationship, mm. uh, proper, you know, you've you, you got to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So proper social sort of relationships, which are just kind of shot to pieces in Judges um, that if if. If they are recognizing, if the community of Israel is actively recognizing God as sovereign, they're living into these realities. The problem is is that they're not doing this. So what the earthly king is principally meant to do is, in a sense, push the people back into that proper covenantal relationship. And that becomes kind of the central thing for the king to do. And then, you know, this then feeds into our conversations about 1 Samuel. But you want to make a point.
1: Well, I just wanted to ask you if this, as I'm listening to you, it sounds so relevant to today. I mean, you can you can say that it's Old Testament. and Yes, it is. But the principle, I think, still applies today is... Um, in Western culture and culture in general, do we have a hard time understanding how God is king and letting Mm -hmm. God rule us as king? Um, I feel like I've seen the cry of people over and over and over again in my life expecting a pastor or a person to be that person to help lead you to God, instead Mm -hmm. of us actually learning how to let God be our King, right? Mm. Is it is it not something that man struggles with in every time period, you know? Sure. And so when you're when you're looking at the example of judges and how they don't know how to see God as King, I feel like that's the same thing that we're still lear- trying to learn. And then, what do they do? They're asking for a king to rule them, um, and very mm. much a lot of times. We do that as well, and, and I've seen people become disillusioned with the fact that if their pastor seems to fail them or disappoints them, even if there's not a moral failure, but a pastor doesn't um, live up to the expectations of a certain person, they might leave the church or they might give up on God or whatever that looks like. It seems like a common theme for us as people is to crave um, when we do don't know how to let God be our king we crave someone to show us how when that person can't live up to our expectations then what do we do <laughs> you know so it's really interesting as I'm listening to you I can see that same pattern yeah. today
2: yeah no doubt and and for many of us in a I don't you know I don't know what your you know your listenership looks like but for many of us you know you uh, know in, in a western kind of context none of us have ever, even lived under a monarchy ever, so the the whole notion of what you know what constitutes you know fealty to a king, loyalty to a king, is really foreign to us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that, that you know we should have a king. Right, <laughs> I'm not right, right.
1: Yeah,
2: turn to a monarchy, but but rather simply to underscore that I think just conceptually we have a hard time understanding what it would be like to live under a king. But you know, back back to this. Kind of part to partly riff on some, mm-hmm. you know, some of the, what you were kind of drawing out is that um, when God comes down and takes up residency within the community as an expression of His sovereignty over the community, part of the byproduct of that is the is the formation of certain tangible, um, very real offices that are populated by people. To convey the work of God in this world. In other words, uh, the priesthood is is critical in this process because I think they're the ones who are supposed to shepherd and steward and kind of manage, so to speak, um, this reality of God's presence here on earth. But they're also sp- meant to be the, the spokes. Persons for the for the, the revelation of God to the wider community. In other words, part of what the priests are supposed to do is convey that notion of God's sovereignty mm-hmm. through the teaching and through the process of atonement um, and through the process of worship. You know, they would be it'd be a place, a center of worship as well, where people would come in, sing psalms, and so forth. Uh, so they're meant to be expressions of that rule and that reign over the community. So there's built into sort of God's own revelation as king to this world, there's built into that revelation the important piece played by human actors in that. And we talked a little bit about this in relationship to covenantal, you know, to the covenantal theme that God comes down and initiates the covenant, makes it possible through his, you know, through his ongoing work but also requires that there's a human com, you know, a human component to this to actually make it active. So, and in the same way, monarchy as a theme starts to sort of develop in that direction as well. So, to sort of push this then into 1 Samuel, the hardest part to 1 Samuel for most people in my experience of teaching, well, there's two very tricky parts to it. The first one of them is the rejection of Saul. Mm-hmm. and Rejection of Saul, because a kind of a... a you know, a very direct sort of line. Well, he just messed up. Doesn't always work when you really kind of press into. It. You got to kind of tease that rejection sequence out. I'll leave that to the side. But the other one, which is the first one that most people encounter, and oftentimes is the more difficult of the texts, is the First Samuel eight, where the people do request a king, and then God says, "It's not you, Samuel, they've rejected, but me they've rejected as king," and so. That oftentimes is the place where where most people sort of sit. They stop, sit as they should, and not uncommon for them to come to the conclusion that the monarchy is the earthly monarchy is a bad thing. And I'm certainly sympathetic to that because you know, on in an initial reading, that's what it appears to be. And I think there's a certain level in which the author, you know, the historian there in First Samuel eight is actually t- you know warning us that you know they, there are some serious problems potential problems with, you know, with the monarchy. In fact, he outlines this, Samuel does, uh, in two places. But uh, the buildup to First Samuel 8, and then what happens right afterwards in First Samuel 9, I think contextualizes God's comment there, almost to render it as more of a rhetorical comment than it is an actual pragmatic one or practical one. Let me, let me explain that just a little bit in, in, in first Samuel two, after Hannah's, after the birth of Samuel and Hannah, you know, celebrating this through song, she, she makes mention of the coming of a King. Mm -hmm. And that is followed up in second, in first Samuel two, towards the end of that chapter with that unnamed prophet who comes to announce the word of the Lord against the house of Eli, the corrupt priesthood. And in that he speaks to the unnamed prophet speaks to basically the replacement of the house of Eli with a priest after his own heart who will, who will minister before God's anointed one, which, and that, that messianic theme there of anointing very, almost certainly points to the coming of a king. So by the time we get to 1 Samuel 8, when if you're reading through 1 Samuel, you're already aware that there is this interest in a king. You know, there's something in the text that's kind of kind of moving us in the direction of an earthly monarch in some capacity. The second thing is and then I'll kind of draw this all together to back to 1 Samuel 8 is In 1 Samuel 9, when we we finally encounter Saul, so Samuel is the guy who's tasked by God to go and elect and and anoint Saul as king. Mm -hmm. Everything Samuel does is directed by God, both in the election of Saul and also later in the rejection of Saul. Mm -hmm. Everything is directed by God. In other words, Samuel is acting, and 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 the way in which historian presents this is is very powerful in some respects. Uh, if you sort of pick up the way in which Samuel, you know, anoints David, Samuel's not sure. Mm-hmm. Samuel sees certain things through his own eyes, so he has to be led directly by God to elect and appoint a particular person for this office. And what that suggests is that. In 1 Samuel 9 through 15, and this basically what amounts to the core of the story of Saul as the anointed of the Lord, because after 1 Samuel 15, this anointing moves to David, even though Saul remains king. All of that is directed, uh, uh, sanctioned, um, announced, moved, pushed by God. Mm -hmm. Everything that happens— happens because God says this is what's going to happen. In other words, by the time we get to the actual king, the earthly king, there's no rejection of God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. There's only an affirmation of God's sovereignty. And, And what I mean by that is it's not as though Saul is, you know, completely innocent in what he does, far from it. But simply to say, Saul cannot do as he pleases. So by the time we get to the king, the actual king... The comment that God makes in 1 Samuel 8, I think, takes a different shape. Israel has not rejected God as king in any practical way. If they do that, they cease to be Israel. Exodus is no longer binding. What they've done, and I think what God is saying in 1 Samuel 8, is just as we've had these problems in the past, like judges, here is another instance what God, what the community of Israel has done is historically they have rejected me as king. So I think in that moment, there is this hope, if that's the right way of putting it, on God's part, that if this king becomes active in this world and God gives to Saul, as he does to David, as he does in, in kind of an implicit way, I think, with, with Solomon, gives to Saul his spirit, provides him with a prophetic accomplice in the, in the person of Samuel endows him with all of these sort of resources to function in this capacity as king. I think there's an element in which part of what God is saying or suggesting in 1 Samuel 8 is they have not recognized me as king. Maybe what will happen if we go through this process and I push this earthly king to them, you got to tell him what he could do because he's a human being. But maybe there's this there's this element that this will actually uh, sort of engage the community of Israel in the ways that I need them to engage with me so that they can see this earthly representative of my own sovereignty. And I think that that becomes the way in which if we again, if we're kind of thinking through judges, what is it that we want the community of Israel to do? Is to be obedient to God, to live in covenantal relationship with Him, and what does that look like? Recognizing Him as King. Hmm. So by the time, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say as you're talking about this, it makes me think of of David when Samuel, I mean Nathan comes to him, and mm-hmm. um, and Nathan presents the story uh, to him of uh, the illustration of the rich man and the sheep and all that, and then David is repenting but God basically in that conversation God says why did you go and take for yourself when I I've given you everything I've given you everything that you've needed all you needed to do was ask me you know mm-hmm. and I would have provided for you what you needed which mm-hmm. sounds it goes in line with what you're saying as far as the king is concerned and God's heart toward the king is if I put my spirit in the king will mm-hmm. the people be able to see my character in in order to continue in covenant relationship with me to a de- greater degree than, say, they did during the time of the Judges. Is that kind, right. of, kind of what you're saying a little yeah. bit?
2: Yes, and, and part of it speaks precisely to the core issues that the Book of Judges indicates in the community, and that's that from one generation to the next, they're having a hard time kind of maintaining this stability. Mm-hmm. So if the judge has a positive influence on their his or her generation, when that generation dies, a new generation is on the scene that doesn't seem to know what the old generation knew. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a cyclical generational sort of problem. And one of the key components of what a monarchy is, of course, is that it's hereditary. So mm-hmm. each generation, you have w- what? A son of David who sits upon the throne. So there's a certain sort of durability to monarchy, that addresses some of the core issues in the period of the judges. Uh, and, you know, another place to kind of look at this um, would be, you know, in, in the story of David, um, where the, the durability of the monarchy is something that is seen as – um, it's not that it's simply hereditary. There's a, an engagement with God's presence to make that presence real in the community. So it's not um, – it's not just that the monarchy is given to David so that David can act and do you know, as he pleases. And part of what we see in the story with Nathan and his rebuke of David is precisely that. There's no, there's no sort of freedom of movement for David that transcends the boundaries of the covenantal relationship. In fact – He's held to this covenantal relationship as strongly as anyone else. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that because there's been this focus now, this concentration of, if you want to call it power, in the office of the monarchy, when the monarch gets it wrong, uh, I think I say as as the king goes, so goes the nation. The monarch becomes sort of a focal point for the historian in such a way that this king – really has to get it right. If they get it right, they influence the, you know, kind of the corporate body of Israel in the the appropriate direction. And and not unlike what the judges themselves would do. Mm -hmm. So it's a serious problem when the king gets it wrong. And in in some ways you can see the way in which the history moves away from the kind of the cyclical nature of the judges. You get to the monarchy. It's much more of a kind of all in scenario. Mm -hmm. We have the ups and downs, But we're moving towards a conclusion, whether, you know, we're either going to get this right. You know, the king is going to have that appropriate influence and is actually going to bring the community in right relationship with God. And it's going to be fully embodied and we're going to see God's kingdom come. Or we're going to find ourselves in a position where God has to react radically, the exile. And we're going to have to sort of reset this in some respects. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely what happens. We lose that that cyclical nature And part of that is because of what the monarchy indicates um, or what it does, the influence that it has uh, on the story.
1: So we could move from judges in the cyclical, like um, Israel forgets, they kind of go into their own path, and then God raises up a judge to kind of rescue them for just a bit, and then kind of that happens again. Well, the monarchy does provide stability, but during times of a, quote, good king, it it goes really well. And during a bad team, bad King, they suffer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I would say, what do you think that the theme of monarchy and like the overall narrative? So if we're looking at all of scripture and you, you know, you're going into new Testament and, you know, Jesus is our King, all of that kind of stuff. How do you feel like, the monarchs of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus as King, what do you think that the overall narrative of monarchy, why it's significant for us to really push into that theme and to understand it when we're trying to understand Scripture itself and really just God's character, I think, overall?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think, um, I mean, part of it may touch upon kind of what you were saying before that, you know, when we see some of the struggles that the community of God would have, you know, generation to generation, uh, recognizing sovereignty and understanding, you know, God's, you know, lordship over us in terms of God's reign as King, uh, is perhaps a helpful way of understanding our own sort of responsiveness to covenantal relationship. Um, I think there's another element though to it that the earthly monarch And monarchy in the Old Testament speaks very powerfully to a principle within the covenantal relationship, which is that God operates, um, God operates incarnationally. God works in this world through human agents and does so in ways to give expression to God's own nature. Mm -hmm. So God is a covenanting God. We have examples of covenanting people. God is a God who atones. We have examples of people of atoning people, priesthood. God is a God who is sovereign. We have examples of people who express the sovereignty. Now, I think the key there and the trick there is to try and understand what that sovereignty does. So back to one of your questions is what is monarchy? Um, I think functionally, what the king is supposed to be doing is installing God's kingdom here on earth. So it's not something that's linked up to, you know, a specific thing that the king, you know, he's got to be at all the pageants and wear the Mm -hmm. big hat. He's got to be the guy who, you know, the buck stops here in judiciary matters. He's got to be the guy who leads the community out to, you know, to battle. All those are pieces to what the king does. But the floor for what the king is and what monarchy is supposed to be doing is actually establishing God's kingdom on earth. And that is almost exclusively a covenantal activity.
1: Mm -hmm. And in the New Testament, you see us being called ambassadors and children of God. And, you know, I, I feel like that's carried on in the New Testament through us as believers and as God's children we are also supposed to be almost ruling, if that's what you want to say, in order to bring God's, God's kingdom in whatever way that he's gifted us to do it. And I think that ties into who we are, our giftings, like where we're serving and what we feel like our calling is, you know, and I think that that could tie in like God's our ruler. We're bringing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like for us?
2: Right. Yeah, and and that's the piece I was coming to with respect to Jesus is this notion that what what he's doing uh, is precisely that is establishing God's kingdom here on earth, and doing so doing so in ways that you would define you know, maybe with a host of definitions from you know categories from the Old Testament. He's you know he's a, a form of a prophet. He's a form of a teacher. But he's also a form of a king, of a sovereign. Um, and precisely in those moments where Jesus is most active in kind of defining what the, king, what the kingdom of God looks like, here is what it is. I mean he is trying to convey – he looks very much to me in those moments what I, what I, what I expect David to have looked like uh, in the teaching moments that he may have had with a whole host of people. Here's what the kingdom of God looks like. And then he points out, because of his study, this is the idea from Deuteronomy 17, the idea that the king is meditating on the law, meditating on Scripture, and really coming to understand what it means. He can then convey the content of Scripture to people. And I, I see Jesus is sort of functioning in that capacity and defining that to us. And his teaching then is kind of a an, – an, um, uh, is a definition or a description of the content of Scripture that is undertaken as a teacher, but also, I think, as someone who is embodying the, the sovereignty of God in this world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what's, of course, ironic about this is that his kingdom, and what it looks like from a sort of a practical standpoint in the, in, in the New Testament, is that he ends up being crucified. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his kingdom is one that is the path of suffering. It's the path of, of rejection. It's the path of a certain level of hardship. Um, but it's this, it's this movement of God um, in, in this process of establishing his kingdom uh, here on earth. And I think that's something that in, in, in real ways only the king can do. Uh-huh. Uh, I think other offices speak to it. So such as the prophets, they speak to it. And we talk, you know, you talk about the up and down nature of the kings during uh, the Old Testament period. You know, alongside these kings, uh, especially once we get into the period of the divided monarchy, you know, the kings is they're there living their lives. There's this parallel track that's every bit is, you know, robust of the prophets. And as the king dips and does what is wrong, here comes these prophetic voices to sort of peck at him. To get him to do what is right, and to criticize and critique his his rule. But it's always prophecy is always kind of has that focus, you know, of getting the community, getting the king back into alignment uh, with God. So there's something in, that's invested theologically in the office of the king um, that, in some ways, is not really invested, you know, anywhere else. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, there's a point to what the king does for the community that in some ways only the king can do. And I, and again, I think it's part of that, you know, that express, expression, the nature of God, that God is a sovereign God. And as a result of this, we need to be able to see God's sovereignty active within the covenantal frame. Yes. And again, it's challenging for us in some respects, because we don't, you know, we've never lived under a king. So how do we, you know, how do we functionally wrap our minds around this? Well, we try to be, be obedient to God and live according to His to His purposes. But go ahead.
1: It just seems like to me if we pull in um, the last podcast that we did about covenant relationship that um, God comes nearer and nearer and nearer, even to the point of deciding that He wants to—it seems like He's coming nearer. He's probably not necessarily coming nearer, but to the point of covenanting with us in our um, as a human— you know, and so I think it's really significant that he comes, he lives among us, he um, eats and teaches, and all of these things. This is what he's showing that a monarch does: is that a monarch cares about his people, interacts with his people, even humbles himself beyond what is expected. Mm -hmm. for his people. That's, that's God's idea of monarchy. Whereas I would say man's idea of monarchy is separation from the people ruling over the people, um, developing a nation and a power, you know, whereas, uh, Jesus came here, was one of us, taught us, loved us, served us, died for us, um, goes back to the father and yet still serves us by being our high priest in heaven, Interceding for us, praying for us, and yet the Holy Spirit is now here, serving us day in and day out as our internal guide. Um, You know, and that's even further in that covenant relationship of abiding with each person, rather than um, abiding within the uh, tabernacle or the temple or whatever. He, he, that covenant relationship's even a closer. A closer covenant relationship, I would say. If, I, it's so hard to find that vocabulary that you need to speak of heavenly things on an earthly manner, <laughs> but I'm trying really hard to find the right yeah. words for it. We should, we're um, all late
2: for that, yeah, for right?
1: sure. Um, so I think that we're going to take a quick break. And if you guys are interested, so the last part of this podcast is going to be the heavier part of the podcast where I asked Dr. Embry to kind of talk about. How does uh, the idea of war, how do we stomach that? How do we read it? How do we view it in the, eye, uh, in the lens of monarchy and have a better understanding maybe if we've been afraid to approach that subject or have been avoiding that subject within the Bible? Um, he's going to offer what wisdom that he can because I don't believe that I have a lot of wisdom for that area. So let's take a break and we'll come back. Crossroads Summer Camp has been providing an exceptional summer camp experience to students and their leaders since 1996. Held in Anderson, South Carolina, Crossroads aims not only to be the most fun week of the summer, but our primary goal is to create an environment for each camper to be seen, known, and have a life-changing encounter with God. We bring in dynamic speakers, including Clayton and Shari, great worship leaders, and a huge selection of activities for any teenager in your student ministry. So head to CrossroadsSummerCamp.com to learn more and register your group. See you this summer! Hello, Overcoming Monday listeners. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and listening to me and my professor, Dr. Embry. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Yep. We've been talking about a lot of things in a previous podcast. We were talking about covenant relationship and obedience. And then today we've been talking about monarchy. And to sum it all up today, we're going to end with, I think... um, one of the most one or one of the biggest questions that I get from people is why is there so much war in the Bible? Why does God ask people to go to war? All of these war questions, how can a loving God command his people to go to war? These are things that I get. And I honestly, am looking at people and my answer probably isn't very thought out. It's like, I don't know. That's what <laughs> they did during that time. So, um, I have asked my, Professor, to come in here and just um, maybe provide us with a little bit of context and wisdom, um, if this is something that you may have conflict over in your heart. So, <laughs>
2: right. Well, th- thank you for that. Yeah, I I'll start out by saying that I, you know, the comments I'll make here, um, it's not as though I have a like a distinct position on war, and I pull out my you know my three by five card and read my my statement on. Conflict in, in the Old Testament, and I also hesitate to add that what I say here I won't pretend will you know dull the edge of this particular knife, um, and will resolve the tension that people probably feel um, about conflict in in and especially in the Hebrew Bible, but conflict in the Bible and violence and what appears to be you know God sanctioned violence in different sections of Scripture, but maybe. Maybe I can offer a couple of thoughts that will help, I don't know, frame the conversation a little bit or contextualize it. Um, it's a little challenging um, in part because conflict and violence shows up in, in so many different sections of, of Scripture. Uh, some of it is very sort of real-world stuff that is happening. So there's conflict between the Israelite community and, say, the Moabites – Um, or there's also overtures to this, you know, whether it's, you know, prophetically promised or, you know, it's, it's metaphorical or it speaks to something that's going to be a great cataclysm, you know, in the end of days or something like this. So violence is a theme that kind of runs through a whole range of sections of scripture. I think where most people probably have the greatest conflict, sorry, have the greatest sort of Uh, tension with yeah yeah is is in the places of sort of the real world you know god said for israel to do this and so then israel undertakes this 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 process i again i think each each scenario has to be taken uh, on its own but maybe i could pick up and use probably one of the most prominent sections where we see violence as, a, as kind of a key part of the story in the book of Joshua. And maybe offer just a few reflections on that that I think provide us with sort of a, a hermetic or a, a, a lens through which to read conflict and warfare. Again, not to say that it's universal, but maybe a way of kind of approaching the whole business of conflict um, and maybe maybe provide us with some toeholds to understand other sections of scripture. So, uh, one of the key themes in the in the in the conquest accounts, as expressed by Joshua, is that Israel as they entered the, the land are going to be in conflict with the people groups that live in the land. And at different times, the you know the commandment of God is is more stringent. Than other times, but ba- basically, it's you know, do not allow these people to live amongst you, and in in that, it can be you kill them all. So don't let any of them live, or you drive them out of their land. Either way, the conflict is every bit as harsh. And I, I don't, we don't need to look very far in a contemporary setting to see the impact that war has on people, and that displacement or dislo- you know, dislocation of, of their their homeland has on people, and how and how troubling and terrifying that those experiences must be, uh, to get a sense that the same sort of things applied, you know, back then as well, people felt the same way. Um, so it becomes a very challenging thing in the, in the, in the course of teaching the, you know, the book of Joshua. And, um, so I try to set up some dialogue or some conversation around this to get a sense of what's really at stake here in the book of Joshua. And can we use that story as a way of kind of uh, addressing the notion of conflict itself. So let me say a couple of things. The first is that um, the stories of – I see the story of Rahab and the story of Achan in the book of Joshua as being very important uh, comparative and contrastive stories, not only for our understanding of you know dynamics of insider-outsider, like who's on whose side – But also for our understanding of kind of what constitutes kind of the baseline for conflict within the book of Joshua and potentially within the Hebrew Bible more generally. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we see in the stories of Rahab and Achan is that what defines – so Rahab lives in Jericho. Mm -hmm. God's commandment to the people of Israel when they go to Jericho is you kill everybody. So there's a commandment from God, which we just got done talking about covenantal obedience and about the importance of this. There's this commandment from God for them to do this. But the story of Rahab works out in such a way that she, of course, she and her family are preserved from this death because of what they do for the spies. And her motivation for doing this is her recognition of the, of the God of Israel as the Lord of heaven and earth. So there's a, a level on which, you know, this is considered Rahab's confession. She has... Committed herself to the God of Israel, and that uh, provides a method or a means by which she avoids that that conflict. She gets out of that conflict, and we never criticize because we don't really have a ground to do this. We never criticize the Israelites for failing to uphold the first commandment of God, which is to kill everybody. Because we've seen the story of Rahab and of naturally she should live, right? We never sort of wrestle with that, that idea that there, there's a – the commandment of God to leave none alive is, has to be considered something that is mutable. So it's got a certain malleability to it in relationship to the people that are kind of the target of that commandment. Mm -hmm. In other words, Rahab becomes a kind of a cipher for understanding how conflict works in relationship to different people groups. Now, again, each each, you know, subsection of Scripture has to be handled on its own. But the point is, is that if you. If you kind of draw that out a little bit, and you say "What if?" and of course there's no real answers to "What if," but they're good ways of exploring kind of concepts. Mm. Is what if the the whole town of Jericho, which had the same knowledge that Rahab had of God, you know, in the Exodus accounts, what if the whole town had responded as Rahab had responded? Well, the replication of her story then would be the whole principle of conflict simply evaporates. Mm. Now. I, again, I'm not saying that that you know, dulls the knife edge because what we actually see in the stories is we see a great deal of conflict. But I think what it does is it establishes a certain baseline for the way in which we understand Israel's own actions in in the Old Testament, but also something perhaps of the nature of God or God's heart in certain sections of scripture, which is that there are times where the will of God, which is operating with a particular worldview, will come into direct conflict with the, the will of humans. And that conflict can be resolved in some respects by the, you know, the, the signs that God shows to the people which are both Israelite and non-Israelite. But sometimes that resolution will not be made. What we will have is we will have that conflict between the ways of God and the ways of this world, and that conflict leads to a, a certain form of of mm-hmm. warfare, of violence. Um, and again, it's not—I don't advocate for that. I mean, right, I, yeah. I advocate for peace, um, but it's to to recognize that there's there's certain moments in the story of God that I think these elements of warfare become much more much more pointed. Mm. The other side to that, though, which I think needs exploring is the story of Achan because this is a character who is an Israelite's Israelites from the tribe of Judah, right? He sits right at the center, so to speak, of Israelite identity. And because of his sin of taking the plunder for himself, which is is an abandonment of the commandments of God, he disobeys God directly. He and his whole family fall under what is called the ban. He falls under the same category of prohibition that the people in the land fall under. So in a sense, Achan, the Israelite, gets because of his disobedience, becomes Achan, the Canaanite, Hmm. and he suffers death at the hands of the Israelites. And I I think that that, again, establishes this sort of floor, at least in the book of Joshua, from which we can work with this concept of conflict, Mm -hmm. is that it's not about. Which is oftentimes the result, you know, conclusion we draw. It's not about an us versus them, in an in an ethnic stamp you know, c- capacity. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's Moabites over here, and there's Israelites here, and never the twain shall meet, mm-hmm. right? We have, we have the story of Ruth to prove otherwise. Yeah. But there's this there's this there's this crossing of these lines, and sometimes those characters who are typically under a certain sort of prohibition, which results in conflict. On the other side we have these you, we have these Israelites these native born Israelites who find themselves you know under the wrath of God because of their disobedience. Mm-hmm. So I think what I would say is that if one of the ways of talking about conflict is that conflict emerges in relationship to God's work and will in this world it's not something that I think God passionately desires, mm-hmm. but there's a piece to it that is kind of understood that at certain points, conflict is going to be a real part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And ideally, this would not happen. And the way in which we, you know, we can see this perhaps not happening is if the community of Israel functions as they should, they become a representative of God's kingdom here on earth and the other communities around them, this is part of Solomon's dedication of the temple. All nations shall stream to Zion to pray to the Lord. That's not a conflict model. That's an invitation model. But in order for us to get to that point where Israel can function in that capacity, all the pieces of Israelite society have to be active. Mm -hmm. And at times there becomes a real conflict, a real threat. So another nation may threaten Israel and their survival. Uh, Israel in the period of the entry into the promised land has this, these conflicts, which again, I think are sharply, you know, uh, relativized in relationship to, you know, the story of Rahab. Um, but it may be that those, that idea or that concept uh, that conflict kind of orbits this unfolding nature of God's kingdom mm-hmm. uh, may be helpful. If, if we push that into the new Testament, then if the interest Of If conflict is something that kind of works itself out in the direction of establishing God's kingdom here on earth, part of what Christians have to sort of wrestle with then is if Jesus does that work, establishes God's kingdom here on earth, how do we then understand the nature of conflict? Now, this, I think, puts us into kind of contemporary and perhaps, you know, more practical theological sort of ways of approaching this, Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to fall in the camp of being a a realist, uh, a Christian realist in this way, Mm -hmm. uh, and understand that there are times where we have to engage in certain levels of conflict for the sake of justice. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I don't know that that is now simply the case that we are, you know, a Christian nation doing this sort of thing.
1: Right. it's a I different think, context than the Israelites, yeah. I,
2: I think so, yeah. In, 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 I think so in a lot of ways, yes. But but maybe that helps provide some of the backdrop or maybe a way, and again, I don't pretend to sort of right. dull the tip of the spear in all of those stories. I think each of them have to be read and taken, you know. Um,
1: At their on, own. On. yeah, in their <laughs> own context. And
2: Well, if I may say, sorry, one other thing about this okay. is— <laughs> I, um, I think oftentimes, because of our because of contemporary language, which is fine. I mean, it's how we talk. Um, we have this understanding that the opposite of war is peace,
1: peace yeah, <laughs>
2: or the opposite of peace is is war. And so, when we think about peace in in the Old Testament, and we think about shalom. That the opposite of shalom, the opposite of God's sort of full, the bringing of God's kingdom, the bringing of God's peace and rest for human community and right relationship with God, this sort of full picture of what peace is, uh, is war. And in the, in the, in the Old Testament, the, I think the way in which we understand that needs to be changed just or shaped just a little bit differently in relationship to the creation account and to the ongoing preservation of the created order. And what I mean by that is that probably the better way of talking about in the Old Testament is that the opposite of peace is actually chaos, hmm. is is the destruction of all order. And so war and warfare is, is uh, an activity – that actually can be brought into service for the movement
1: of chaos. Order, yeah, to
2: chaos. it's a, it's a conflict against. In some cases, war is a conflict against chaos. Now, it's strange to say that in some respects, because what we see, we oftentimes see in war, war is only chaos itself. And I think there's an element which is true. You know, there's there's truth to that, but. But partly, what war does in the Old Testament is it serves the aims of bringing about a certain sort of peace. And there, I think it's best again to think of this in terms of you know rip covenantal relationship. Mm-hmm. What is it that God is? What is it that God is trying to do in relationship to the disorder that was brought about during the fall? Well, trying to reestablish this. Is he doing this through building up armies? No. I mean, that becomes obvious in different, you know, sections of scripture where it's not about, you know, the biggest army. It's not about creating armies and standing arms. It's more about a covenantal people. You know, the biggest impediment for the community of Israel during the book of Joshua is not that they don't have the right swords. They don't have the, 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 you know, the biggest army. They don't have chariots. The biggest impediment for them is that they're disobedient to the covenant. The only places that they are unsuccessful in what they do is precisely when they're disobedient to the covenant. So warfare and conflict are not these major themes for the nature of God in in terms of like the shaping of this community. Do they fight? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do they need men who are ready to go to war? Absolutely. This is part of the process. But it's not the thing that sort of, you know, forms their core identity. Mm-hmm. They are, a they are a covenantal people, and if they maintain their covenantal relationship, then they will be successful in this process. No matter who opposes them,
1: right? Uh, so, I would say that war is that war comes as a byproduct of living in this world. It, it conflict is here doesn't normally go away Um, Mm. you can very much see that you think a problem is solved or peace is made between countries and then all of a sudden it falls apart Um, one of my favorite shows is Madam Secretary have you ever watched that what's it called Madam Secretary no. Well, anyway, it's so good, but she's always trying to make peace. But she feels like one minute she gets a peaceful situation with some other country, and then all of a sudden, this other country is mad at her, and so she's just always trying to like resolve all the peace. And um, and so I think that if we think about the fact that there were so many tribes and nations living among one another and. If God was the God of like domination and war, probably he would have just had them, you know, annihilate Egypt and um, Persia and all these other nations and create this giant continent, you know, that was all being ruled by God. If that's really what his nature was, he could have done it way better. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Um, exactly. Or the
2: principal means by which he went about doing it. Uh, if that were the principal me- method or mechanism by which he, he was going to establish his kingdom, we'd have a very different story. We would not have this sort of small, narrow story about this rather isolated, small country
1: yeah.
2: uh, that becomes the placeholder for God's, you know, the spread of God's kingdom through through the work of, and, and from a Christian framework, through the work of the New Testament and Jesus
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and the ongoing work of the Spirit. We have a very sort of different story uh, in, in that light.
1: In fact, a very persecuted people, not only during the time of the old Testament, but, um, which continued through and still kind of continues today. And in, in a way, um, mm-hmm. if you're looking at specifically the na- nation of Israel and how surrounded <laughs> they are, you know? Sure. Um, but well, I appreciate you. I didn't expect you to have like the ultimate answer on this subject, but i do think that talking about it is healthy sometimes when um, when it isn't a discussion that is often spoken of in a healthy way, you know? And so sometimes I think it can be polarizing, like, I'm for peace. I'm, You know, you can't just have peace and then it turns into an argument. But I think it's good for us to even um, broach the subject today and just to touch on it for a minute. And I know that yesterday you said something to the effect of, I don't know if you can remember it, but you said something to the effect of... God as a monarch, sometimes I think you said this. I'm hoping I'm not putting words in your mouth. Uh, sometimes uh, told his people to go to war because his he wanted to protect his nation. Like as a monarch, he had a responsibility to his people. Is that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't I honestly don't remember. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember all the details yeah. of our conversation yesterday. but yeah, I mean I, that that's certainly I think part of it. Yeah. If there's a there's a need at times to to in practical ways defend the reality of yeah, of God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in large measure, you know, through the course of the of the monarchy, when the two kings well, actually when the three kings the, of the United monarchy, but mainly the two Davidic kings, when they're doing what they should be doing. Uh, Israel really moves in the direction of having peace. Uh, And and it's interesting when you look at kind of the constitution of David's court, that peace is something that it also, you know, fosters, apparently fosters a very cosmopolitan sort of reality to his court, meaning that, you know, the people that he is keeping close company with are not simply Israelites. One of them, you know, we know from the Ittai, the Gittite, he's a Philistine. Mm -hmm. So, he David through his through the process of both conflict and you know obedience to God creates a con- a context where a whole range and host of people seem to be drawn to his leadership seem to be drawn to the community that he's you know overseeing mm-hmm. so con- conflict's a part of that but it's not the thing that sort of drives you know the entire story the the hope for the author Oftentimes, and I think you see this in different stages in Joshua, the desire for the author is actually to move to the place of peace. Mm. You know, we want to we want to get beyond this warfare because we really get we really want to get about the business of establishing God's kingdom in its fullest sense. And that's not something that happens through war. That's something that happens through you know the offices that God, the gifts that God gives His community, uh, word and presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the represent, and their representation of God's presence here right. uh, on earth as cool. witnesses. So.
1: Well, thank you for being brave and tackling this subject, not only of war, but also of all the things we've talked about, monarchy, and then a previous um, podcast, I think it's, was it episode 65, James? Do you remember? 65. Episode 65.
2: Hey, Shark, could I say one more thing before we come? say it. No, 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 I'm sorry. I, and I don't need to have the last word. It just, I, I jotted this note down in relationship, something we were talking about with conflict, but I think it applies to kind of all, all the pieces that we're talking about. Um, one of the things in, when I talk about conflict and, and warfare, I mean, I don't, I don't mind talking about because it it's a natural part of kind of what I do is uh, I hope to inspire and I hope that people are inspired to, as, because you kind of said, I, I you know sometimes people over here, I'm against it, I'm for it. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing that is important is that we take ownership of these stories mm-hmm. because these are these are not these are not the stories of ancient Israel if if we're to trust you know the work the work of the spirit to safeguard these stories to us as our Old Testament as Christians. these are our stories.
1: part of our history, yeah,
2: and they're meant to convey something very, I think important to us they're difficult and they're challenging but part of the uh, you know part of the, the the biggest step is the first one and that is to get into the conversation about them and i think it's no good to simply say i just don't like this mm-hmm. uh, i think there's a there's an aspect and an element that you can be uncomfortable with what's going on and i think that's fine but sometimes that discomfort is precisely what the stories are intended to inspire in us is that we shouldn't be comfortable with conflict because The text isn't necessarily comfortable with it. It's moving towards something else or it's wanting to inspire us to something else. But I think the the critical thing for people is to take ownership of this. It's no good to get uncomfortable with, say, judges and then not read it. Because in doing that, we really impoverish our own, the witness that God has given to us through the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And we run the risk of not seeing things that we really need to see. Yeah. so, I, I mean, just to encourage people to say, you know, don't 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 move away because you're uncomfortable. Take your position, but read it carefully mm-hmm. and take ownership of it. It's our story. It's your story. So um, it's no good to say I just I don't want to read all of it.
1: That's so yeah. good because even in a human relationship, right, with, you know, I love my husband, but there are not all the things that, I mean, we both have conflicts about different <laughs> things that we have. There are things that he doesn't like about me. <laughs> And there are things that I don't like about him, but that doesn't mean that I imagine that they aren't there. We we know that they're there, we admit that they're there, and we talk about how to resolve or live among it, you know? So Yeah. yeah. And
2: sometimes and sometimes the being there of those conflicts and tensions are precisely the things that that foster a better, deeper relationship. Yeah. It's not that they're always I mean, sometimes they can be harmful, but in in not turning a blind eye to them and engaging with them is where we oftentimes do our best work at become at becoming better, better people in our relationship and in our stewardship mm-hmm. of that relationship. Yeah. So, yes, I think that that's a good, you know, that your your analogy. I mean, I find it hard to believe that Clayton finds any problems with
1: you. <laughs> I note that I've really enjoyed having you as a guest, Dr. Embry.
2: Sure. Anytime. Thank thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure.
1: And also, I wanted to let you guys know, in case you don't know this, all of you listeners, that CKM is putting these um, podcasts into a resource for you. So if you will go to www.ckm.resources, is that right? Oh dot com. Oh, Dot CKMResources.com, right, James? Okay. Um, CKMResources.com. You can go on there and we will eventually have this as a study plan. I believe our prospective release date is May 1st, but. You can keep up to date on our Overcoming Monday Instagram account, which is at Overcoming Monday, and we will announce when that is released. If you would like to do the entire plan, there will be more than just the podcast, and this plan is called How to Read the Bible, which is our season. So today, I hope that we've given you, Dr. Embry and I have given you some secrets to uh, for your big breakthrough in your Bible reading, and we hope that you overcome this Monday. Thanks for listening.
0: We're thankful that you chose to listen to Overcoming Monday, a production of Clayton King Ministries. This podcast happens because of you, and there are three ways that you can help us reach even more people. One, be sure to share us with your friends and follow Shari on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ShariKing99. The second way is that you can also make a tax-deductible donation to Clayton King Ministries, a 501c3 nonprofit, at claytonking.com slash give. And third, of course, subscribe to our podcast. Get on your favorite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And for more encouragement to move you forward in your faith, check out Shari's amazing blog at shariking.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope that we've given you something to help overcome this Monday.